Well, hello there, and welcome to the Keat Shelley podcast. This is another special episode to mark 2021's Keat Shelley and Young Romantics prizes, and this year's theme, which is writ in water, taken, of course, from John Keats's epitaph, Here Lies One Whose Name Was Written Water. We've been posting poems throughout the prize that quote the phrase in different configurations and different ways and different moods. Stella Gibbons' Written Water, Oscar Wilde's sonnet on Keats, which he wrote shortly after throwing himself famously onto the grave, and then Shelley's fragment, which manages to actually misquote the epitaph. Today we're going to look at probably the greatest poem inspired by Here Lies One Whose Name Was Written Water. It's On Keats by Christina Rossetti. And I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Dinah Rowe to the podcast. Hello, Dinah. Hello, James. Thanks very much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. And I've I've put you into Google. I mean, obviously not literally, but... And I found out, now let's see, you're a reader in 19th century literature at Oxford Brookes University. That's right. You've written a biography of the Rossetti family. Yeah, the Rossettis in Wonderland. And you've edited, so t- for Penguin Classics, two editions, one of which is a selected edition of Christina Rossetti and an edition of the Pre-Raphaelite writers, uh, particularly poets. Yep, Google has informed you correctly. Good, and then the final thing is that you're also editing the complete poems of Christina Rossetti, the whole of her works for the prestigious Longman annotated series. That's right, from first to last. So for those who perhaps are arriving or listening to this podcast in the far reaches of outer space and, and don't have access to the internet or to, to poetry books. Perhaps I thought we could start just by asking an obvious question, which is, who was Christina Rossetti? Okay, so Christina Rossetti was born in 1830 in London to an Anglo-Italian family. And I think this is one of the most important bits of her background. And one, one, one of the parts of it that's often really neglected So her father was Italian. He was an Italian refugee fleeing political persecution uh, when he came to London. He found employment as a teacher of Italian because it was quite fashionable in those (laughs) days to have your children or your aspirational children learn Italian. So what you wanted was was a handsome and magnetic Italian tutor for your family. And he was very much that. So he actually started... um, as a poet, but sort of a, a spoken word poet, mm. improvising poetry on street corners, you know, as a, a sort of entertainer. So that's a busker. Yeah, a busker. Well, you know, you know, one of his his mentors sort of did that and trained him how to do it. His personal magnetism was a really important part of him. It's what drew his wife, uh, Christina Rossetti's mother, Frances Polidori was was drawn to him because of this magnetism now her father was also a teacher of italian and an italian immigrant and her mother was english so actually christina rossetti one of the most famous english poets actually is is only technically about a quarter english kind of three quarters italian the name polidori rings certain bells was she that flavour of Polidori though? Yes. And as you probably don't have time to run off to Google just now, I can I can actually f- fill you in. Yeah, so her brother was John Polidori, 
the John Polidori who wrote The Vampire during one of the most famous story writing competitions of the Romantic era, where he, Mary Shelley, Byron, and, and Percy Shelley all, all competed to, to write the best haunted Gothic mm. piece. And he did, he did pretty well, I would say. <laughs> Because his vampires, I'm sure you know, really kind of set our standard for what we think of as the uh, handsome, aristocratic vampire, which he clearly based on Lord Byron and called Lord Ruthven. Uh, yeah, he was Byron's physician, mm. which is why he was there. And he was actually kicked around by Lord Byron and some of, some of the others in quite a snobbish way. Because, of course, he was, he was a doctor by all accounts, not a great one, and but kind of the, the humble son of an Italian teacher didn't really run in Lord Byron's circles. And I think that was, sounds like that was made pretty clear to him. So he had a pretty miserable time. But one thing that does survive at that time, which is really interesting to me, is his letters to his sister, Frances, Christina Rossetti's mother. Mm. He was very close to Frances. She was his easily his favorite sister. And he, he, there, were, there were a couple other sisters in the family um, who we'll, we'll, we might talk about later because they're pretty remarkable too. And he wrote her letters from abroad describing his adventures and saying things like, oh, I wish you could be here with me. It would seem that there's fairly direct connections to the generation of romantic poets that would have preceded Christina. Was it an artistic family? Was that a fluke? It's, it's hard to say because Francis never pursued an artistic life <clears throat> but I suppose she she wouldn't have at that time that would have been mm -hmm. quite difficult she became a governess but I think all of her intellectual and creative ambitions and she had plenty of those were sort of poured into her children who she always she always said she hoped they would they would grow up to be creative <laughs> and intellectual people mm. and and she she really helped them achieve that. She she began um, lots of small family magazines and things like that. There was this one called Hodgepodge, and she encouraged the children to do these little contributions. She marched them around London in and out of museums, taught them about the city, taught them about art, taught them about animals. You can kind of tell she's a professional teacher and a governess just from the her very deliberate style of child rearing and interestingly her two boys uh, William Michael and Dante Gabriel go off to school at uh, King's College London where their father teaches so he eventually goes out of private homes and actually gets you know is, is teaching there and they get a much worse education than the girls at home get from Francis and all, all, all of the children uh, we're happy to acknowledge that fact. You've mentioned two of the children. We've got Christina, Dante Gabriel, William Michael. There's a fourth sibling. Maria. Maria. Yeah. Even if you didn't know a huge amount about them, a lot of those names are going to, to ring bells. She was, Frances was obviously very successful at, at creating a, gen, a generation of extraordinary artists and an incredibly influential artist in She's, a number of fields. She certainly was, and it's, it's interesting to me that she kept a very famous and beautiful portrait of her brother, John Polidori, on display in her house. That signals to the children <laughs> that, you know, he's an important, accomplished person. And I think more importantly, or more emotionally, 
that he was someone to be loved and venerated. Um, so he was a suicide, mm. which in terms of, of Francis's religion, suicide was forbidden. And it was thought that you would, you would go to hell. So for her to kind of have a, a family portrait of somebody who was a suicide up in her home was, was quite a strong statement. And it's a, we're recording this on a rather extraordinary night, which is tonight is actually the, the 200th anniversary of, of Keats's death. I think John Polidori's death is also this year. I mean, I think one of the more, you know, one of those strange twists of fate is that Keats's dates, uh, 1795 to 21, and Polidori's are the same. Both of them trained doctors. Both of them died believing that they'd left no possible sort of trace of themselves. In a way, his example lives on in in well particularly two of the Rossetti uh, siblings perhaps we should just without wishing to discard and do that awful sort of parental thing of here are my two you know I'm very very proud of them all equally but sort of slightly less proud of these two but can we talk quickly about uh, Maria and and William Michael who perhaps does have stronger links to, to, to obvious, more obvious links to romanticism but maybe not as quite as well known as, as the other two well William Michael has a very strong links to romanticism in that he wrote biographies and editions, I think, about both Keats and Shelley. He was also president of the Shelley Society before it was the Keats Shelley Society, and there's a rather wonderful letter which I quote in an essay I've just written, um, which is uh, calling for a sort of membership drive, saying there aren't enough members of the Shelley Society. Maybe that's why yeah. they got Keats in. <laughs> uh, Pro Shelley. I think that's probably <coughs> true, and. One of the continuing argument that he had with his more much more famous brother, the painter Dante Gabriel Rossetti, was over who who was better, <laughs> Keats Keats or Shelley, mm. and for for William it was Shelley, and for Dante Gabriel it was of course Keats, mm. and this was an argument that I started in about Christmas eighteen sixty nine, and then continued I think in some form for the rest of their lives even after Dante Gabriel Rossetti died William Michael kind of keeps up the argument by publishing a biography of Keats which is not the world's most flattering biography it's very sniffy isn't it yeah it's a very sniffy biography and critics at the time remarked on this mm. William Michael didn't see it himself <laughs> he just thought this had been fairly straightforward but it's unusual for William Michael to be I don't know, to be kind of catty and judgmental in the way mm -hmm. that he is, and that really, really unusual. He's famously neutral. He's just, he's Switzerland every time in every argument. Mm. But suddenly when it came to Keats, this broke down. And I have a private theory about this, which of course I can't prove. But it was after his brother's death in 1882 of basically drug addiction. Dante Gabriel was an addict and very demanding and very difficult and alienated pretty much everybody in his life. It was really, really harrowing and following a suicide attempt earlier stages. I think that William Michael projects some of the feelings he had about his brother's death mm. onto Keats, who Dante Gabriel admired and who William Michael noted he, he read no one more than Keats near his death. That was the poet he mm. read most and sometimes I think his argument with Keats is really an argument with his brother because emotionally that's just too much there's a very striking moment in 
William Michael's biography where he talks about this much debated incident in Oxford of all places where Keats may or may not have indulged in some sort of sexual activity contracted some form of sexually transmitted disease and then as a result began taking mercury which biographers have argued has had a debilitating effect on his health and whether that helped to usher in consumption and and William Michael's one of the first people quoting a doctor to really grapple with it um, and there's a hint in the quote of a kind of yes moral uh, sort of lapse of judgment that Keats came to, to regret which would sort of yeah that sort of rather chimes with what you just said it, he's working out other feelings through a biography perhaps there should be more sniffy biographies kind of, they're kind of interesting but do you have a sense of what drew Dante Gabriel to Keats? Uh, I think Dante Gabriel liked Keats uh, just because I, th- I think the sort of surface beauty of his verse would have attracted Dante Gabriel. And by, by surface beauty, I don't mean sort of superficial. I mean genuinely the sort of beautiful surfaces that would mm-hmm. that would draw an artist's an, an artist's eye. Uh, his kind of proto aesthetic love of of feeling of emotion and interest in psychology that's something that's something that's very pre-raphaelite also the keatsian love of the imagination and that's that's something that would have drawn dante gabriel to also possibly his humbler origins because while dante gabriel's parents you know perfectly respectable a governess and a teacher they're not the sort of first tier of London society, and yet a, a poet could kind of emerge from that. I do want to ask about Christina's attraction. We we have we we missed one of the which is Maria. What she follows a sort of de- devotional life. Yeah, Maria becomes a a nun, which is unusual because she's. She's Anglo-Catholic, mm. so that's that's kind of you know she's Church of England. The Anglo-Catholics actually revived sort of Protestant nunneries, and Maria just went for a spiritual life rather than a creative one. She did write some poetry, mm. but it didn't seem that that was the direction that she was going to to go in. She just devoted herself to kind of spiritual life and to religion, which makes. Blaine, why she didn't seem quite as enamored of the romantic poets as perhaps some of the others. Does that help us place Christina somewhere between perhaps on the one hand Maria following a, a life of, of devotion and contemplation and Dante Gabriel who you know we can turn that on its head who clearly overindulged in a kind of r- r- romantic existence and perhaps could have done with a bit more uh, retreat and, and getting himself to, <laughs> to, to a nunnery. It seems that Christina's Perhaps those are two forces pulling at her, rather. Yeah, well, she's equally uh, kind of faithful and a devotional poet, but also has a, a strong romantic imagination, particularly in writing about the natural world, I think, which she sees as infused with a special magic and a special meaning, which isn't just although it's usually primarily spiritual faithful and 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 christian but also tinged with something gothic and and dangerous and also very human we had a sense of what dante gabriel saw in 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 keats what what do you think christina saw in him 
Well, that's, that's a really interesting question because whenever I read Rossetti, I see Keats everywhere, which is kind of surprising because I think Keats is also a really male writer. I think he writes about things that, you know, concern guys and mm. young ones, you know, racketing around London. His appeal to Dante Gabriel Rossetti is more obvious to me. But what what I think she likes about his poetry is is that sort of natural that that combination of the natural and the magical that sort of that nightingale feeling mm -hmm. i think she also really likes the italian qualities or aspects or illusions mm -hmm. that turn up in keats's poetry its anglo-italian nature appeals to her develop that idea that the connection between particular two Rossetti poets and Keats and perhaps on the edge of it Shelley too but with the links to Italy and to, to, to things Italian uh, and one obvious way to think about it is the, the formation was it the foundation of the Paraphylite Brotherhood in 1848 well that's and that's a seems a very sort of yeah. Keatsian year which is the year of the first big major biography, the Richard Monkton Milne's Life, Letters and Remains. Is there a way to think of, of the Pre-Raphaelites and Keats and Italy as all intersecting? Are these all foundational yeah. parts of it? Absolutely. So Milne's Life and Letters of Keats that you've just mentioned comes out in 1848, and this is the year of the, the founding of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. And William Holman Hunt, one of the other painters, meets Dante Gabriel Rossetti uh, at, the, at the Royal Academy, where Rossetti is admiring Hunt's picture of, of the Eve of St. Agnes. Mm. And he sort of rushes up to him and says, I think this is the best picture in the exhibition. We need to talk. So you have to remember as well, at this period, Keats is not famous. Mm. And Hunt has sort of already done a, a picture of a poem. So Hunt had found some sort of weird pirated copy of Keats in a remainder bin in some bookstore and had read it and thought, oh, I really like this Eve of St. Agnes mm. poem. I'm going to do a picture. So he and Dante Gabriel were absolutely thrilled when Monkton Milnes' Life and Letters came out and they read it out loud to one another over the summer as they wandered around London. And then they took a copy with them when they went to visit Belgium and France. They were completely immersed in Keats at this period. They draw up uh, the, the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, which is just coming together, which also includes uh, people like uh, John Everett Millay, another painter, F.G. Stevens, a painter and critic, William Michael Rossetti, as as the secretary and 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 others they all drew up a what they called a list of immortals which was the sort of the the artists and the people that they admired most mm. and on that list were both keats and shelley and they gave there was a star system as well up to up to four stars i think jesus christ gets four stars mm. 
and although not an artist as far as I'm aware, but maybe carpentry though, mm. and arts and crafts, I suppose. And I'm, I'm honestly not being facetious. This mm. has actually just occurred to me. So Keats gets two stars and Shelley gets two stars. That's not bad. So the, And that's their list of immortals. So they, they were kind of going into this pre-Raphaelite brotherhood endeavor, actually explicitly thinking of, of Keats and Shelley as, as their heroes. Such a strange moment, isn't it? Because these are these feel like young, contemporary, cutting-edge poets, but who've both been dead for the best part of three decades. It's that strange moment of 19th century poetry where there's a you feel this kind of vacancy because of the fact that Byron and Keats and Shelley particularly uh, die so young. And it's interesting that it's painters, because I think one of the things that's striking about a lot of Joseph Seven's letters um, from from Rome as Keats is slowly starting to gain a bit of traction is that the painters are drawn to him. It's almost mm-hmm. that's who Seven is, is hanging with. But does that link with what you were saying earlier about Dante Gabriel's side of beauty and there's a kind of visual sense of uh, sensibility in Keats's work that artists are responding to? Yes, completely. Well, and, and also a narrative sense. So things like Isabella and the part of Basil. Mm. Right, so that's a Boccaccio, one with a, a very strong kind of narrative. Well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a murder story, I suppose, mm. a murder story and a love story, and like you know, things happen in a kind of sequence. And also, uh, the, the Eve of St. Agnes actually, as well, is a great story. Mm. You know, who is she going to imagine when she dreams of her lover? You know, who's, who's it going to be? Oh, it's this guy in a room. Now they, they go out into the storm. You know, there's a there's a sort of beginning and middle and end. So I think they like that Keats's kind of narrative capability. I can't believe I just said that. Mm, narrative, <laughs> you should coin that one. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and, but also the more abstract, the more abstract feelings, you know, the, the nightingale imagining death, the first time reading poetry. So those sorts of things. Keats is a really, I don't have to tell you this, obviously, but Keats is a really, really literary poet Mm. and they're a very literary bunch of painters is there a sense too that we're talking about the 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 work is there an attraction to those writers as 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 lives as well as is there something that the sense however true or or kind of mythologized uh, or rather untrue and mythologized of you know live fast die young oh certainly i would have thought certainly for the pre-raphaelite brothers Mm. I, do, I don't know about Christina Rossetti, but certainly for the brothers, they they would have found uh, uh, yes, a live fast, die young romance in that, I'm sure. Just like on occasion, I will see one of my students, even at this very late date, sporting a Kurt Cobain t-shirt. And I think it's that same, you know, that, that, that rebel who died young. For Christina, is there... Is that sense of him being an outsider, an attraction? The fact that he's he's ended up in the country that, that, that exiled her own father, for a for a woman for a woman poet perhaps, and a woman poet who's also going to write Anglo-Catholic devotional work. Is it? It, it may not be a kind of direct uh, tra- sort of parallel, but, but well, I think other people have written on. Keats's appeal to women mm. and to to women writers for that reason. So yes, I think that's I think that's probably right. Responding to someone who's marginalized, mm. 
as as another another potentially marginalized voice. She wouldn't be the first, and she wouldn't be the the last. I I suspect. And it's interesting that when she writes her own poem about his grave, it's a poem that literally centers him, right? Instead of you know brings him from a margin to to a center, because she describes the grave as a garden in a garden. You know, so he's he's kind of he's 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 right at the middle. This is this is what it's all about. This is this this is a, a flourishing, wonderful thing. The mo- we should get to the reason we're here, um, which is to talk about Christina Rossetti's poem on Keats. As I said earlier, this is. The 200th anniversary of Keats's death, and it's about ten o'clock, so uh, we're we're there or thereabouts. So I, I think what I'll do is I will ask Diana if she would read it for us. Okay. Yes, I also included this one in my pre-Raphaelite poetry anthology. You know, on the basis that it was about Keats. So this poem wasn't published in Christina Rossetti's lifetime and actually you won't find it in most collections of her her poetry i don't know why this gem has been overlooked i think it's great and i publish it every chance i get she wrote it on uh, there's there's a note on the manuscript on saint agnes eve in 1849 so 1849 so this is not long after she she would have this she would have been full of keats through her brother the pre-raphaelites but also through the, the the milnes Biography and 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 sort of yeah. compilation. Yeah. So she, wow. and she's about nineteen years old. She's nineteen years old. Nineteen years old. Blimey, that makes you feel suddenly <laughs> less talented. <laughs> nineteen years old. Darling, would you read it for us, please? Okay. On Keats by Christina Rossetti. A garden in a garden, a green spot where all is green, most fitting slumber place for the strong man grown weary of a race soon over. Unto him a goodly lot hath fallen in fertile ground. There thorns are not, but his own daisies. Silence, full of grace, surely hath shed a quiet on his face. His earth is but sweet leaves that fall and rot. What was his record of himself ere he went from us? Here lies one whose name was writ in water, while the chilly shadows flit of sweet St. Agnes Eve, while Basil springs his name in every humble heart that sings shall be a fountain of love, verily. Thank you, Dinah. How, how do we start? How, how can we get into thinking about this poem? Well, I think, I think that I always like to start poetry analysis with the title, which I think is always the, one of the big overlooked bits of, of poetry. I think it's interesting that this is not John Keats, it's on Keats. It's on Keats. It's about Keats, as a as a subject. But there's also that sense of maybe an allusion to kind of ode on a Grecian urn, or you know something on is something. This is on the, in a kind of material sense. Mm. And you know what is on Keats? This kind of grave is on Keats. This mm. poem is on Keats. There's a lot of stuff that's on Keats, mm. as this poem is is well aware. I really like the opening of this poem because it's so deceptively simple like everything Rossetti does a garden in a garden 
and you know you can just easily overlook that but if you think about a grave as a garden in a garden that's a really interesting image cemeteries are places of death where it's over it's not supposed to be a garden where things are growing this is supposed to be the end but this isn't the end it's a green spot so green is the color of life and of of growth so this actually isn't a tragic kind of dead place but but one that's absolutely green and thriving and then she says the and again in the second line where all is green so i'm not imagining this all is green everything's green mm. um so banish the thought of you know crumbling tombstones and you know dried up flowers no all all is green i also like when she says uh, he's a strong man grown weary of of a race uh, at this period not a lot of people were talking about keats as a strong man mm. so keats and manly you know he was sort of i don't know borderline effeminate and kind of weak and dying and wasting away he's not a strong man grown weary of a race so he's a race he's a racer he's a runner he's a sportsman um and of course this is all biblical as well you know and it's it's that sort of race that she's talking about but i, I still think it has those resonances and then again we've got fertile ground on him a goodly lot have fallen in fertile grounds this fertile this green this growing but it's also something that's full of grace so this is something salvatory and special and spiritual um his earth is but sweet leaves that fall and rot you you have this this notion of decay you know not only kind of keats his body but all the things around him this is a rotting garden but but one that's rotting in order to give birth to new things, to be incredibly fertile. And so what's that going to be? Well, that's going to be the basil that springs his name. Basil, uh, of, of, of course, a bit very Keatsian. We've got basil and um, daisies growing on this grave. Plants and flowers that Keats has made famous in his poetry are growing on his grave so you know what we're coming to <laughs> to suspect we realize she's writing about the afterlife of his poetry and and his art so these things you know that this springs his name in every humble heart that sings so this that's a bit weird every 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 humble heart that sings so who, who are all these singing hearts is this people who recite and remember his poetry or is this and is this other poets that kind of sing his poetry these singing hearts are, are a fount are also a fountain of love that they kind of pay this this tribute to to keats through this this fertility this productivity mm. this poetic legacy and I love the last word of this poem, which is a really weird one, which you wouldn't expect, mm. uh, which is verily. Right? Well, not a lot of poems end with verily. And I think, of course, it means truly. And, you know, what I'm saying is true. But I think verily is also the sound of that of that fountain, that kind of trickly, that, you know, verily. Mm. And I think, I, you know, I just I think it's just a really, really lovely tribute because it's 
it's not overly dramatic or melodramatic or trying to make anybody sad. You know, Rossetti never visited Keats's grave. But if she had, it's really doubtful that she would have thrown herself all over it in a kind of histrionic, attention-seeking manner. This is a poem about a, a poet and about poetry and about how it's kind of immortal. And it's interesting, too, because Rossetti never had children and neither did Keats. And I like... I like this this sort of idea that you don't have to have children to be fertile and green and productive. Mm. You can be productive in other ways. This is kind of crazily radical and wonderful thing to say in 1849 when mm. you're 19 years old. It reminds me of the key, the fam one of the famous Keats axioms that 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 which is creative create creates itself. That there's a kind of self generation. You don't need anyone else. You are this you need a pen and a piece of paper and your imagination. Yeah. But it's interesting because it's, it's also got really strong religious resonances, of course, mm. because it's Christina Rossetti. So all this, um, the garden in a garden and the fountain allude to the Song of Solomon from the the Old Testament. You know, the Song of Solomon, one of those beautiful poems and a very beautiful erotic poem, which is interesting, absolutely erotic poem of kind of physical love and I think it's really interesting that she's invoking that here the, the poem talks about kind of a, a spring shut up a fountain sealed you know here this even though it is a garden and a garden and a kind of fountain it's not it's not shut up or sealed mm. you know it's this kind of healthily plashing and I think I think there's something really erotic and strange going on here but not not something very normative and I, I think that's really interesting. But is that because too. she, to some extent, is the, the person that's unsealing the fountain? You, you, Keats's legacy, his uh, what was it, his his pang dowered poetry <laughs> and reverberant lips are awakened by these people that will, will come later. And, and and interestingly, actually, you say about about Wilde, but the, one of the fascinating things I, which I didn't realize about about Wilde's is it to to the to the grave where he prostrates himself the same day he'd been taken to and met the pope <laughs> there'd been a bit of a battle for for oscar's immortal soul between a a protestant uh, teacher of his and a, a friend or more of an acquaintance who became a, a catholic priest and they were going to to uh the Basilica of, I think it's St. Peter outside the walls in Rome, and Wilde insisted on stopping by the graveyard and entered and supplica supplicated himself before the grave and upset this, this friend. And I think it's, it's Wilde, I think it's Oscar saying, I'm not a Protestant or a Catholic, I'm, a, I'm an artist. I think, <laughs> it's a, I think it's a kind of semi-blasphemous, at the same time reverential, moment a very keatsian sort of thing daring and transgressive and completely sincere yeah and his, so, his some, poem sees keats as a martyr doesn't it yeah and, and a, a very effeminate yeah. sort of feminized mar martyrs and i think what's interesting about rossetti and wilde that all of the things that those critics who hounded him towards his grave all the things they hated about him the sensuousness the effeminacy all the stuff byron 
marked him for. These are the very things that the next generation, the Christina Rossettis, the Tennysons, Brownings, are going to go are going to like about him. And you suddenly see that Keats has been, to to use a much uh, overused twenty um, first century argument, as a sort of almost avant garde, you know, just ahead of his time. You know, what you say. I rather like this. Very, do you hear in Verily the slight sense almost of a kind of Amen? There's a, there's a sort of, um, you, you can imagine all the pre Raphaelites sort of bowing their heads in, in some ways. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and some sort of like neo medieval resonance too. <laughs> Verily, my good sir, something. What would, do you think Christina would have made of, of the epitaph? What would have. Well, it's, it's interesting that in this poem, she, she says, she, she puts it as a question what was his record of himself? ere he went from us of you know that that's his record of himself so she sees this as really autobiographical mm. he's recording himself here lies one whose name was writ in water interestingly you know for a poet you think she'd sort of do more than just sort of quote it which is what she does here but then you realize it does come back later because um she talks about the name uh, writ in water and then we get well basil springs his name and so you get the idea of, of you know watery springs as well and every humble heart that sings in a, this fountain of love so this water becomes a fountain so it's not just not just this kind of like drippy stuff you know it's actually this, this great gush mm. you know this kind of really quite frankly erotic kind of burst mm. when I see that line you know writ in water it actually makes me think of something, you know, that, that fades kind of tracelessly or, you know, that's just very, very fluid. And actually in terms of volume, not very much, <laughs> you know, a name written water. I don't see a fire hose or a fountain, mm. but... Well, not when your name's John Keyes. Yeah. It doesn't take a long <laughs> Exactly. But, but, but she sort of does, you know, and she sees this as water that's going to be recycled, which is what a fountain does just like the body is recycled, just like the sweet leaves that fall and rot are recycled, just mm. like poetry is recycled, just like these images are recycled. And so that's how it's written water. It's going to come back. It's going to water the, the next generation of poets. And here we are on the 200th anniversary of, of Keats's death. We're reading him through Christine Rossetti. He's here, she's here, and we're now all part of it. And we as readers are kind of participating in this... Yeah, this water cycle that's yeah. that's yeah. and and it's great because you get you know that's where you think about the the basil and you think about Isabella and the pot of basil mm -hmm. and her her murdered lover's head you know in that pot kind of fertilizing mm -hmm. that basil which she won't mm -hmm. let go and is kind of wrapping herself around so there is that there is that kind of <laughs> it's a bit gross actually you know Keats's mm -hmm. head kind of fertilizing this 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 basil this artistic kind of gothic you'd see Christina Rossetti has really gothic energy all the time mm. and you you can see that you can see that here but it's actually it's not kind of negative and and horrible it's loving and I don't know a bit proprietary as well I think mm. and also this gestures towards the the anglo-italian once again, because Keats would have come to Boccaccio's story through English translation. Mm. Am I right? Because I don't think he read Italian. 
than Rossetti, who would have read Boccaccio in the original, you know, she could read Italian, um, is reading that story through Keats's English retelling mm. of the Italian story. And then it's reappearing in this kind of Anglo-Italian grave. And it's just, it's, it's just really interesting the way English and Italian are talking to each other a little bit. And then her father will die in presumably in England and yeah. suddenly there's a generation this, this kind of in, this shift to return to, to your very first point which is we, we go to the title and one of the things about the, this sort of moment of, of budding fame you can you call the poem on Keats you don't even need to call it John Keats it's yeah. Keats is almost enough she doesn't mention the name within the sonnet it's kind of it's a bit like those Hollywood movie stars that never have to say their name you know suddenly you're famous enough the question i want to ask was did did keats continue to be a, an influence you, you you do feel buried somewhere in the poem is is that kind of tug between keats and and something else you say there's there's eroticism but there's also uh uh devotion this there's, there's a number of poems she writes around this this same time one is uh, I think only a few weeks later called Sweet Death mm. it ends with almost one of Keatsian quotes and youth and beauty die so be it thou God of truth better than beauty and than youth are saints and angels a glad company and thou O Lord our rest and ease are better far than these it's almost like she's reminding herself Keats is all very well but there are better, there are better things too you know Jesus gets four stars um, Keats still only gets two did that did that tug of war continue for, for much of her life? Well, I, I wouldn't just characterize it as a, a tug of war. You know, I don't, don't think it was particularly a, a conflict. Mm. So it, there's a reason that she's drawn to the idea of one whose name was written water, and that's the notion of of fluidity. And I think for Christina Rossetti, she's she's very good at kind of fluid stuff, at mobile thinking not kind of not not things that are are fixed which might be surprising from a religious or a devotional poet you know that perhaps might seem surprising you'd expect something sort of more pious and didactic but she doesn't tend to to do that and i don't think her poetry really sees a big conflict between between those two they can I wish actually quite easily be reconciled mm. you know a life of of artistic imagination and a life of kind of holiness and, and grace are for her compatible entirely compatible one of the things that Rossetti believes or you know, theories about what, what Rossetti believes is that she follows a tractarian notion one of the interesting things about tractarian poetry is a sort of high high church kind of anglo-catholic approach to, to poetry is that poetry expresses itself to us in the way that sort of god expresses himself to humankind in that it can't be direct it's got to be kind of mediated and allegorical because if it's too direct it's too much for us to absorb it's mm. too much for us to take and, and you know Rosetti's poetry 
is is very much in that vein or sort of borrows that that spirit and that notion so for tractarian poets poetry was a sort of vehicle of divine grace mm. same same for Rossetti and the same for Keats in a way that we don't have such a problem with him using Milton or, or Dante as, a, as, as models even if he's taking them and perhaps taking them towards more pagan or, or secular areas um, Wordsworth yeah. doing the same sort of thing with the, the prelude there maybe he was more, more religious yes I think that's true I also think when you're discussing women poets I think women religious poets get a harder time everyone's quite happy for Gerard Manley Hopkins to be kind of erotic and spiritual at the same time it doesn't cause a flutter but you know if Christina does it there's still a kind of I don't know Victorian holdover <laughs> kind of pearl clutching mm. about it make, make of that, <laughs> that what you will well, I think I want to say thank you very much Diana that was absolutely fascinating well thanks very much for for letting me come on and, and, and talk about Keats on this you know this very right. important day I know we shouldn't be time stamping this but it is an yes. important day Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Keats Shelley House and the Keats Shelley Memorial Association. You can find out more about the Keats Shelley House, including our history, collections and Keats Shelley 200 Bicentenary at ksh.roma.it. For news about 2021's Keats Shelley and Young Romantics Poetry and Essay Prizes, visit keatsshelley.org and click Prizes. To support the museum by becoming a friend or making a donation, stay at keatsshelley.org and click Support Us. This episode was written and presented by James Kidd. The music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Zabriskie. Visit chriszabriskie.com. Oh, my leg. I thought as it was the anniversary, and I have, I've managed not to read any keeps today. Um, she did a funny one that nobody ever knows. My favourite Keats poem. As it is coming towards eleven o'clock. This living hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, would, if it were cold, and in the icy silence of the tomb, so haunt thy days, and chill thy dreaming nights, that thou would wish thine own heart dry of blood, so in my veins red life might stream again and thou be conscience calmed see here it is i hold it towards you so we could go that way or but i always think there's this other side of keats that funny naughty keats so i'm going to read an early poem called where be ye going you Devon maid. Where be ye going, you Devon maid? And what have ye there, the basket? You tight little fairy, just fresh from the dairy. Will you give me some cream, if I ask it? I love your meads, and I love your flowers, and I love your junkets, mainly. But behind the door, I love kissing more. Oh, look, not so disdainly. I love your hills, and I love your dales. 
and I love your flocks are bleating, that on the heather to lie together, with both our hearts are beating. I'll put your basket all safe in a nook, and your shawl I hang up on this willow, and we will sigh in the daisy's eye, and kiss on a grass-green 